What is the most used man-made material on earth? You guessed it, concrete. Look around, it's everywhere. Sidewalks, driveways, foundations, floors you stand on, and even entire buildings are made from concrete. So why don't we discuss it more? In each episode of Concrete Logic, we will explore one concrete-related topic with the help from industry professionals that are shaping the future of the trade. We'll talk with suppliers, contractors, architects, engineers, specialists, and even some proponents of competing materials about their views of concrete and their vision of its future. Welcome to another episode of the Concrete Logic Podcast. And today, it's my pleasure to uh, have on the show Dr. Anirban Basu. Uh, he is CEO of Sage Policy Group, uh, but like I'm sure most of my listeners uh, know him as the chief economist at the uh, Associated Builders and Contractors, ABC. That's that's how I know it, Dr. Basu. Um, I'm a big, uh, big fan. I follow uh, all his stuff, and uh, we can talk about the uh, like your Substack and stuff at the end too. Uh, I'm a subscriber of that. But uh, um, thank you for coming on the show, Doctor Basu. I think this was either really good planning on my part, or just stupid luck to get you uh, booked for today with everything that went on in. Uh, it, um, the world as far as economics last week uh, we uh, found out that we had another uh, quarter of negative GDP growth and uh, the Fed raised the rates can you uh, talk a little bit about that and, and what you see um, coming down the the road here well I mean the the debate about whether or not we're already in recession is raging in America uh, you're right that uh, for two consecutive quarters, we've had negative gross domestic product or GDP growth, uh, negative 1.6% during the current year's first quarters, negative 0.9% during the second quarter, according to the initial estimate from the Bureau of Economic Analysis. That's two consecutive negative quarters of GDP. That meets the informal definition of recession. It's a definition of recession widely accepted in much of the world. However, it is not the official definition in America. The official definition in America is whatever the National Bureau of Economic Research's Business Cycle Dating Committee says. Uh, they typically announce whether or not the recession has begun four to four months to a year after it's begun, uh, which means that this debate is going to rage on for many months to come. Obviously, we've got midterm elections. A lot of this is politicized. Uh, you know, I say to people, if you want to hear that we're in recession, you go to Fox News. If you want to hear that we're not, you go to CNN. But um, we, we, we don't know. Uh, my feeling is that we're not in recession, not with this very busy summer travel season, not with uh, retail sales still strong, not with us adding so many jobs uh, in recent months, including 372,000 jobs in June. The unemployment rate pinned at 3.6% for many months. That doesn't feel recessionary. I think recession is coming, just to get to the uh, second part of your question, recession is coming. That uh, the Federal Reserve is, of course, uh, engaging in this uh, rate tightening cycle. They're raising interest rates, raising borrowing costs for all kinds of economic actors, including project owners, uh, and that uh, eventually those higher borrowing costs and the attendant reductions in consumer spending and business investment will drive us into recession. But I don't think we're there yet. Okay. Well, um... Why, 
you know, like you said, it's a big debate on 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 if we're in recession or not, and obviously it is political. Um, why do you think it's important for us to label that we're in a recession or we're not in a recession? Well, for contractors, it's often because uh, business volumes follow the economy. In other words, historically, when the economy has turned downwards, uh, non-residential contractors at least experience that about 12 to 18 months after that occurs. So if a recession begins in year zero, for instance, contractors might, that, might not feel that right away because they've got backlog and they're working off backlog. And of course, many contractors, concrete or otherwise, have significant backlog right now. But what happens is as they work down that backlog, new backlog is not added because the economy is not strong anymore. And eventually they find themselves operating below capacity. Uh, you know, many contractors right now are operating at full capacity, and they would love to add capacity if they could find more workers, they could get equipment, so on and so forth. But um, eventually that weakened economy catches up to the contractor community, and that's why contractors should care, because they have to build that into their strategic planning. Right. And uh, I guess with the, with the raising rates and everything um, and, the, and the costs, um, being impacted by that, but could could a recession be good for us with the, I guess, with how things are priced right now as far as assets, commodities, and that such? Could, could that bring pricing down? So could a recession be a good thing? Well, that's a very great question. In fact, uh, recessions can be good for us uh, in a number of different ways. They tend to wipe out market excesses. You know, obviously the the stock market, uh, financial markets generally became very, very expensive. Uh, if you think about uh, what, what one might consider an asset bubble in terms of cryptocurrency, whether the price of Bitcoin or Litecoin or other cryptocurrencies, a recession can bring prices back into equilibrium. So that's not a bad thing. Uh, some of the folks uh, watching this podcast might remember the recessions of the early 1980s, the, the 1980-81 recession and the 1982 recession. There's a lot of inflation in the U.S. economy coming into that period. It largely got wiped out by those two recessions, and that set the stage for four decades of prosperity, basically, in America, because inflation came down, interest rates fell, borrowing costs fell, uh, and, uh, and the economy in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and then the 20-teens performed quite well, didn't it? Uh, and this was not simply a phenomenon in America. This was true around the world. Uh, that, you know, last four decades we've seen significant declines in global poverty, for instance. COVID-19 obviously interrupted that. Now we have, uh, for a number of different reasons, this elevated inflation, consumer prices rising at over 9% over the past year, materials prices for contractors rising over 20% over the past year. Uh, and so a recession could help us by dampening some of those prices. In fact, that process may have already begun with lumber, steel, oil. Some of these prices have already come off their peak quite meaningfully. Uh, and uh, and so recessions can be a good thing. They're just they're, they're not very fun while it's happening. So an operation can be a very good thing for a patient, but they don't like the operation. But they might like uh, the period thereafter. Right. Yeah. I think I think we could uh, use a little of uh, help on as far as cost of things, um, like you said, wood and steel and all that. That impacts uh, uh, the concrete world. Uh, a lot, and it's uh, it, I'm seeing um, projects that um, are being pushed or delayed because of the cost of, of things, not necessarily 
uh, steel or lumber, but it could be finished goods, windows, and things of that nature. Um, but uh, yeah, so I guess a lot of folks at the well are you know look hear recession and they think all you know bad things are coming. But to me, I think it helps if we kind of focus on what's on the other side. We've been through these things before. Um, do you think that due to the um, 07, 08 recession that this recession is getting more attention than ones in the past? I, I Well, first, a couple of reasons for this. One, everything's political. So, um, you know, everything is viewed through a political lens. And so it, it's, it's hard to find something... Uh, uh, you know, that has re- relevance to our politics that doesn't receive a lot of attention, right? 24-7 news service, so, uh, so those, those kinds of things. But, uh, yeah, I think people are very concerned. A lot of people got walloped by the 2007, 2008, 2009 recession. Uh, the, the recession actually, that recession actually started pretty mild, but then after September 15th of 2008, when Lehman Brothers, the fourth largest investment bank on Wall Street, faltered, it got really bad. That's when it became the Great Recession. But in any case, yeah, I, I think because of politics, obviously, and, you know, again, midterm elections are coming up, and because, you know, so many people suffered, they lost homes uh, during that Great Recession or immediately thereafter, that, uh, yeah, there's, there's heightened scrutiny of uh, economic uh, trends and uh, generally. And, again, uh, this next downturn could be quite significant for reasons we might be able to get into. Yeah, it just seems like... Uh... I was going to ask you what what you kind of hit on it already, but I was going to ask you what period of time in history does does this more this what we're going through right now what does it mirror most? I've heard folks say, uh, well, I think a lot of folks are saying it looks like the seventies um, with the the price of uh, of goods and and commodities um, going through the roof with inflation. Uh, but I've also heard folks um, go back to like the 1940s where there's a lot of instability and pricing. Are you, um, since you mentioned it already, do do you feel like looking back, does this look more like the seventies to you or? Yeah. I mean, I think that's right. Uh, Not in terms of magnitude of impending downturn. I don't think this is going to be as severe as the early 1980s were, in terms of the economic downdraft. But uh, the dynamics are very similar. This is not a demand-side recession. So the 2007, 2008, 2009 recession was really about demand, faltering demand. So as an example, with respect to the housing market, many people uh, obviously borrowed money, took on mortgages to purchase homes. It's not clear in many cases that uh, they should have been uh, given such large mortgages. And so... uh, Uh, That created a housing bubble or helped to create a housing bubble. That housing bubble bursts, lending markets shut down, people can't access credit, and so they can't express demand for goods and services during the downturn. But it largely had to do with demand as opposed to supply. This is different. The 1970s were about supply shocks, largely supply shocks uh, imposed upon America by Middle Eastern oil producers. Those oil shocks in the 1970s, uh, we didn't have enough energy. Uh, some people might remember that uh, in certain contexts, if you had a, a, a license plate with an even-numbered uh, you know, license plate, the last number being uh, an even number, you could fill up gas uh, with gasoline on one day. If, if you had an odd number, you'd have to wait the, for the next day, that kind of thing. 
Uh, and though we haven't had those kinds of issues in America, gasoline prices, of course, have been very high, uh, along with window prices and garage doors and all kinds of other things people can think of, concrete, of course. Um, uh, and so this is about supply. You know, we, we can't source enough equipment. We uh, Our energy prices are sky high. On a, in addition to that, we have something else going on in America, which is it's been very hard to find workers and hold on to workers. You know, we, people talk about this great resignation. Uh, it's real. You know, every month this year so far, at least 4 million Americans have quit their jobs, um, uh, often looking for better jobs. And so, uh, you know, when you, when you think about that between materials prices, equipment shortages, uh, human capital costs, that's a lot of inflation. And so these are supply side of the economy issues. Demand is pretty strong, by the way. It might surprise people, you know, they're filling up at, at the gas station at $5 a gallon, and even more for diesel fuel, of course. And uh, they're thinking, you know, as they're filling up, look, I'm, I'm, I'm paying $5 a gallon. When I get out of this gas station, I better have the road to myself. I mean, I'm paying for exclusivity. But they don't have the road to themselves. Airfares have shot higher over the past year. Airplanes are full. So this is not about weak demand. Demand is strong. It's about a supply shock to the economy. A lot of that is COVID-19 induced. Uh, those, you know, the economic lockdowns and then, you know, deconstruction of the global supply chain. Um, and so that's a lot like the 1970s. And therefore, the recession to come might feel a bit like the early 1980s with, uh, you know, rising interest rates, the Federal Reserve trying to slow the economy significantly, and I think they will slow the economy significantly. They already have to a certain extent. You can see it in the housing market. Uh, and uh, and that's what's going to usher forth that next yeah. recession. I heard someone uh, say if we didn't infuse the when, in 2020 when we shut everything down and then we the the government came in and, and, and we injected the economy with a bunch of money, right, with a bunch of li- liquidity, uh, folks um, that I listened to were saying that this is what we're going through right now is what would have happened if if we didn't um, if we didn't inject all that liquidity into the market to get things uh, jump started after we shut everything down. Do you, do you think that is the truth that we're kind of now we're dealing with our I guess bad medicine? for shutting everything down and and we just kind of kicked the can down the road when we injected the economy with all that money? Yeah, I think that to a large extent there are some policy missteps. I can understand why they happened, by the way. So, you know, what was going on? The economy was torn apart, ripped asunder in March of 2020. We didn't know how long this downturn was going to last. Policymakers didn't know. Uh, you know, for many months we had no vaccinations. Uh, death tolls were high, um, hospitals were overwhelmed. And so, you know, there was this uh, urgency to uh, to pour money into the economy, whether through money supply augmentation, the Federal Reserve, cutting interest rates, or the federal government itself with major fiscal stimulus packages, the first one of which was signed by uh, then-President Donald Trump on March 27th of 2020, the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, which is a roughly $2.2 trillion package. We had many packages thereafter, uh, you know, under both uh, both administrations, meaning uh, both President Trump's and President Biden's administration, you know, roughly $6 trillion of stimulus, and on top of all that uh, money supply growth, and it was too much. Economy couldn't take it. You know, demand surged. The global supply chain was 
broken in many ways, continues to be, that's going to be inflationary, right? When you stoke up demand and supply is not ready to handle it, that's inflationary. In hindsight, the stimulus was probably overdone. But again, you can understand why there was this urgency to put so much stimulus into the economy. We just simply didn't know what we're dealing with economically. Uh, I think that in, in 2021, the Federal Reserve really missed some signs that they were overdoing it. Um, they fell behind the curve. You've heard this statement many times about the Federal Reserve, and now they're having to overdo it the other direction, having to raise interest rates uh, much more rapidly than the economy can really handle. Again, you can see that with the damage done to the U.S. housing market already uh, and more interest rate hikes to come. Uh, and so the group that overstimulated, uh, overstimulated the economy uh, is now going to help drive us into recession. So, but um, yeah, I, I, a lot of our issues right now have to do with those policy decisions made earlier yeah. in the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, both sides are point fingers at each other, but I think they all had their hand in the pot. So, um, and it's all um, hindsight now. We. Like you said, that uh, we 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 all have the data now. We all see what happened in the past, and now we can say, "Oh yeah, you you messed up. You you made the wrong decisions back then." But like you said, we didn't know what was going on. It was um, I can remember back in March. I was, I was like, "What what is this thing? <laughs> what is this thing we're dealing with?" We have no clue what we're dealing with. No one knew what we were dealing with. So um, yeah, we could all point fingers and and blame. Um, who was in charge then and who is in charge now, but it's constantly um, receiving data and and uh, and and seeing how things are uh, are going. Uh, as far as so you you mentioned the signs uh, that the Fed didn't pick up. Um, where the you said those signs were coming around last year. Is that what you? Yeah, I mean, we started to observe this elevated inflation in the spring of 2021, spring of last year. By the summer of 2021, inflation is running at roughly a 6% year-over-year pace. Uh, so we, we've known for quite some time. And at that time, if you read the Federal Reserve's transcripts of their meetings, those Federal Open Market Committee meetings, they're indicating, as the world knows, uh, that inflation is transitory. Right? They kept using the word transitory. A synonym for transitory is fleeting. So the notion was this inflation is highly temporary. It's uh, about the, uh, it is due to the reopening of the economy from the pandemic. It's some lingering supply chain disruptions, but don't worry about it. It's very temporary. It's going to go away. And as this inflation was picking up, they were still stimulating the economy. Uh, they were still expanding their balance sheet. Uh, they were still keeping interest rates very, very low. Uh, and so in, inflation, not surprisingly, didn't get better, it got worse because they thought it was merely transitory. They missed it. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm engaging in some Monday morning quarterbacking, as it turns out. But uh, that's OK, because, uh, you know, many economists were talking at that time about these issues, saying we think they're overdoing it. This inflation story is real. They need to dial down the stimulus. But, you know, they, they didn't dial down the stimulus. And again, you know, um, the Federal Reserve policymakers could see what the federal government was doing. So on December 27th of 2020, for instance, uh, President Donald Trump signs the Consolidated Appropriations Act. That's another $900 billion stimulus package. And this three months after that, on March 11th of 2021, President Biden signs the American Wesley Plan Act of 2021. That's a $1.9 trillion package. So they're seeing this inflation. They know that lots of federal money is entering the economy. And they keep stimulating. 
So, I mean, one could accuse me of engaging in Monday morning quarterbacking, but we, a lot of us saw this coming. And so here we are. Now, the thing that surprised me most, and I'll admit this, I thought that the global supply chain would have been healed uh, to a large extent by now. I, I'm shocked that people still can't get enough computer chips and garage doors and, and glass and so on and so forth, because we've been operating in this world in which if you wanted it, it was there for you just in time, right? Just in time. And all of a sudden, the supply chain around the world can't handle this. And so this inflation has persisted, I would say, for a bit longer than I had thought it would. Uh, and I admit that. But again, I think the Federal Reserve could have operated differently in 2021. They missed an opportunity, and now we're living with these yeah. consequences. I think the only thing they know to fix things is to spend more money. It never seems like they're like, oh, maybe we should hold back a little bit. It's always, no, nope, we need more, need more money, <laughs> need more money in there. So, um, but so what, so there's other policies that are floating around there. There's, there's talks of tariffs and subsidies and windfall taxes. Can you talk a little bit about those and, and, and ones we should maybe entertain or ones we should avoid? You know, look, I'm an economist. I was uh, trained to believe in fair and free trade. That, uh, you know, I was, uh, you know, educated in a history that follows World War II. Uh, the notion being that, uh, you know, we had fought these major world wars, that if we could create uh, uh, more connectivity from a global trade perspective, that if nations benefited from commerce with one another, that there'd be less chance for war, World War III. Uh, the world created all these institutions like the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, the United Nations, and many others to try to bring us together as a world economically and otherwise, diplomatically, strategically. Uh, and, you know, for much of the post-World War II period, what have we seen? A growth in prosperity around the world. Um, but more recently, uh, globalization has come under criticism. The globalization process, of course, creates winners and losers. Losers in the form of former American manufacturing workers, for instance. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, there's been this pushback on globalization, uh, and, and maybe some of that is absolutely justified. I'm not suggesting otherwise. But what that means is that supply chains uh, are changing. They're shifting, right? And then, of course, uh, during the Trump administration, the imposition of significant tariffs, which further altered supply chain dynamics around the world and the pandemic, of course, high oil prices, high natural gas prices, high transportation costs, that's further undermined the global supply chain as it had been. So the global supply chain is in flux. And what does that bring with, with, with what, what comes with that? Higher prices and lots of scarcity. And so uh, what I would love to see, of course, as an economist trained in fair and free trade is to see the global supply chain Allowed uh, be allowed to heal. Uh, it, does, it makes me very happy that more supply chains coming back to America. By the way, this reshoring is real and it's very positive for the American worker and for America from a geopolitical and strategic perspective. So I'm happy about that. But in the short term, as supply chains are in flux, again, shortages and higher prices. So uh, the world needs a chance to heal. The world's become a very dangerous place. We haven't even talked about Russia and Ukraine yet and the destabilizing effects of Russia on global energy markets and food markets. But, yeah, I, I, you know, uh, that's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see us come back together as a world. America embraces allies in Europe, Australia, Japan, South Korea, elsewhere around the world, and say, how do we build back 
that global supply chain in a way that mutually benefits us all uh, and uh, and is an advantage to NATO and other strategic alliances that try to keep us safe as a as a group of democracies. How do we do that? And uh, anyway, that's what I like so to say. So if I understand, so tariffs and subsidies are are maybe not necessarily a good thing in the long run. They protect, uh, my understanding is they protect industries here uh, in the States for a short amount of time, but eventually that they're, uh, you know, whatever they're involved with, whatever industry manufacturing, let's say, um, those things do not make them competitive in the long run. Um, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I, I think that's right. Yeah, I think you're right that um, tariffs, if they're used to protect weak industries, do a lot of damage. Uh, you, know, I, you know, David Ricardo, the great economist, uh, uh, you know, gave us this notion of comparative advantage that, you know, some nations are better at doing certain things than others. Um, and, uh, you know, absolute advantage, comparative advantage, we don't have to get into the distinction between the two, but that's sort of the notion is America's good at manufacturing automobiles and airplanes and, and diagnostic equipment and so on and so forth. Whereas Bangladesh might be better at textiles and apparel and, you know, seafood and whatever it happens to be, right? Every nation has its advantage. Uh, and so that's what we want to engage in. We want to do the things that we're good at doing and leave the things that other people are good at to others. Uh, but, you know, obviously you're going to have people in America who say, well, we want to man manufacture clothes here. We want to manufacture textiles here. You know, protect us with tariffs. And there, therein lies the debate. So you know, in general, I say if you have tariffs to protect weak industries or industries that lack comparative advantage, and if you use subsidies to also support those industries uh, at the expense of the taxpayer, generally you get subpar economic outcomes. I would tend to agree with that. And right now the world subsidizes a lot. It tariffs a lot. And so we have a lot of inefficiency. And when you have inefficiency, guess yeah. what? You have higher prices. All right. uh, I'm, I brought that up before in a discussion, and, and someone told me, well, China does it. It works for them. And now you're seeing that some of the manufacturing that they've uh, we're doing in the past is going to uh, other countries now where they're more competitive and can produce things uh, cheaper. So uh, I don't, I don't think a good argument is China did it work for them is uh, <laughs> something that uh, go ahead. Well, it did work for them. I mean, I, I would say it, it worked for them sort of this uh, command and control economy where in which they've used the free market as a means to an end as opposed to the end. So we in America, for us, free market economics is the uh, analog to political freedom, right? So, you know, freedom of expression, right to assembly, so on and so forth. Um, you know, that's, you know, politics. But we extend that freedom to engage in the way we want to engage to our economics, right? So we have a free market economy. The, the Chinese, obviously one party control system, have used capitalism effectively as a means to an end, to create more prosperity, to try to, uh, to retire inefficient state-owned enterprises, so on and so forth, and it has worked for them. But it only takes you so far, and the same thing is true with the Soviet Union, right? The Soviet Union used a command and control economy, they didn't embrace capitalism, but they used a command and control economy to try to, to accelerate development in the Soviet Union, and for a time it works. 
But at some point, the economy becomes so complicated that bureaucrats no longer have the wherewithal to make decisions that allocate capital efficiently. And the economy, therefore, eventually, after years of progress, in the case of China, many decades of progress, begins to bog down. That's what we're seeing in China right now. Much lower growth rates. There's a real estate crisis taking place there. People are refusing to pay their mortgages. These kinds of things are happening uh, because they have not fully embraced the free market. And so the next few years could be very difficult for the Chinese economy. That creates an opportunity for Americans to continue to be the leading superpower and to also take advantage economically. If we can get this right, if we can train the industrial workforce of the 21st century, we'll win this yeah. century too. But we've got to have more workers, more highly skilled workers, and a commitment to excellence. And as society right now, we seem to be focused on you know, Republicans try to make Democrats look bad. Democrats try to make Republicans look bad. Forget about that. Let's just make make America yeah. look good and, uh, and to operate efficiently. And so we can get this done. And we have an opening now because the Chinese economy is really starting to scuff. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's almost demoralizing to hear things, like you said, when folks on Democrat or Republican, they're just arguing. And, and then we hear things like we're going to, um, impose windfall taxes on like the oil industry right now and it's to me when you're, you're taxing folks for for uh, um, you know taxing their profits which in, in in theory there's you would take those profits and and, um, and put that back into that same industry invest it back into the same industry also but other companies see that there's a, an industry that has large profits that's going to attract more competition. Um, is that, am I thinking right, or is this windfall tax a good thing? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I mean, are you talking about the, the newest package coming out of Washington, D.C., this uh, climate yes, change package? Yeah, so uh, it, interesting. I mean, um, it, it, in my mind, uh, there's so many cross currents here, it's really hard to answer this question. And of course, because everything's so political, it's very hard to answer this question without upsetting somebody, right? But, um, I, you know, look, I, I believe that climate change is a real thing. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, you know, to invest money to try to stimulate those, and we just talked about subsidies, right? We just had this discussion to try to stimulate those industries that provide us with alternative energy and uh, other environmental benefits. I don't think it's a horrible thing. Uh, the University of Pennsylvania just did a study about whether or not this is inflationary because uh, you've got a couple of things happening, right? You've got taxes going up, but you've also going, you've got spending going down, at least over the course of the entire package. Uh, and the University of Pennsylvania found that it was mildly inflationary through 2024 and thereafter would uh, reduce inflation a bit. but. In both instances, statistically, instinctively different from zero. So in terms of inflation impact, it, it won't have much effect on inflation. Um, I think the big issue here is what people think about that 15% uh, minimum corporate tax. Uh, and is this something you want to do when the economy appears to be headed into recession? It's not obvious to me that it is. Uh, but, uh, you know, to the extent that Washington, D.C. actually uses that money that it collects to reduce the deficit, we need to reduce the deficit. I think people would agree with that. And so I, I don't find this to be the most objectionable package, not at all. Uh, I, one could question the timing, of course, but I think there's there's a fair amount of good stuff in here. And uh, if there wasn't, then I doubt that Joe Manchin right. would go for it. 
Um, and then uh, I was going to ask you uh, for for a contractor, concrete contractor, or any contractor. Do you think do you think it's important for us to keep track of all these macroeconomic type events going on, or is it are we better focusing on our on our uh, micro economic condi- conditions in our lo- locality? Let's say, is it better to focus on that, or is it good to have this global? view and and listen to all this i guess bickering back and forth on what <laughs> what's going on oh no don't listen to the bickering because that's just distracting no no it, it, but it's not a zero-sum game right so the question suggests that you know i can either focus on my business and my customers or and my employees or i can focus on you know fox news or cnn or this raging debate that takes place in america every day on social issues and other issues uh, if, if that's the choice, focus on your business, focus on your customers, no question. But I don't think that's the choice. I mean, the, the, the key is um, obviously focus on your business. I'm a business owner myself, by the way. I focus on my business. You know, I, you know, my employees, are they happy? Are my clients happy? Are we adding new clients? You know, uh, did I give a good speech? You know, is this report up to snuff? All those kinds of things. So I focus on that, too. I mean, for me, it's, you know, I'm an economist, but, you know, as a small business owner, it's also about accounts payable versus accounts receivable, which is bigger. You know, so, but... Um, so, you know, so, you know if, but but I, I don't think that as a contractor, if you're really being strategic, you can ignore what's happening in the macro economy. And if you want, forget about all the discussions. Look at the data. You know, the, the, the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank has this uh, resource called FRED, F-R-E-D, where they have all the data there. You can see data on building permits and money supply and inflation and, you know, materials prices and all kinds of things that you want to see. They're right there for you. And that's very useful. So, you know, forget about all the pundits, the talking heads. Just look at the data and the macroeconomic data. And I think it can be very, very instructive. Um, uh, and then, of course, also pay attention to the financial markets because the financial markets often provide us with clues into where the economy is headed. And that's got to matter to a contractor in terms of their hiring decisions, their equipment purchasing and leasing decisions and so on. I mean, and, of course, pricing. Uh, you know, which is critical. Getting pricing right is one of the most important things that a construction firm can do, and it's more art than science. So to the extent that you can inform the art, it's very right. helpful. Um, speaking of, um, other than um, obviously listening to you and, and following you, is there a book or uh, any kind of resource you would recommend for folks that maybe don't understand economics just to get a grasp of basic the basics of economics? Well, I'm sure somewhere out there there's a book called uh, Economics for Dummies, or so, I suppose, you know. But um, I, I think the best thing to do is just to read. The Wall Street Journal has some excellent business writers. Excellent. Uh, Bloomberg Television is fabulous. A lot of people like CNBC, I understand that. But the Bloomberg uh, broadcasters are so elegant, uh, the, you know, and the, they they also provide a, a more of a global focus uh, typically than CNBC does. I, I like I'm watching CNBC, you know, this morning as it turns out, but um, Bloomberg is just such a good source for business and economic information. They just and in a very nonpartisan manner, uh, and so the, you know that. That's what you want is not sort of a primer in esoteric economics, right? Um, you're not trying to necessarily master, uh, you know, the teachings of Adam Smith and David Ricardo and, uh, you know, 
Alfred Marshall and so on and so forth, Karl Marx, whomever, it happens to be Thorstein Veblen. Uh, you're trying to understand economics as, re as it relates to one's business and, and maybe also one's, uh, you know, position as a citizen, but uh, you know, to one's business. And I, as I say, the Wall Street Journal and Bloomberg Television are excellent, I think, places to begin if one is looking for a place yeah. to begin. Um, that's perfect. Um, Dr. Basu, if, if folks want to uh, um, follow you or learn more about what you do and, and your company, what's the best way? So our website is www.sagepolicy.com, S-A-G-E-P-O-L-I-C-Y.com. We also have a Substack post, basu, B-A-S-U.substack.com where you know we have a newsletter service and uh, it's actually become quite popular in just a few months we have thousands of subscribers uh and uh, we write about the economy we focus a lot on construction by the way so a lot of construction materials prices and construction employment construction spending actually we'll do a we'll issue a report on construction spending today as it turns out, we get construction spending data. I mean, as obviously, we, I don't want to date this necessarily, but we're about to get construction spending data. So, um, uh, so we'll analyze those data. So, um, but we write a lot about the macroeconomy, what's going on. We provide a service called the Week in Review, where we talk about all the key data points that will come out that week. Uh, we have done a, you know special articles on interest rates and the Federal Reserve and so on and so forth. So, and, and we try to be funny about it, right? We try to add some humor in it. You know, uh, I have a lot of references to the Baltimore Orioles in there, the Baltimore Orioles who won the World Series in 1983 and then five years later had the worst uh, season in the history of, uh, of Orioles baseball. But uh, so, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. So it, it can be entertaining. I think it's informative. Basu.substack.com would obviously welcome listeners uh, of this podcast. Uh, to that sounds like more enjoyable than watching Fox News or CNBC. So uh, I'm already a subscriber, so highly recommend uh, Dr. Basu, thank you for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a privilege. Uh, your questions were fabulous. Obviously, you have a hugely granular knowledge of economics and economic theory, and so that's that's very impressive. And so uh, it was a challenge for me to keep up with you, but uh, hopefully uh, people who no, watch this will thank you. We'll have to do it again. Thank you for listening to another episode of the concrete logic podcast if you like what you heard and you think others would get some kind of value out of this podcast please share it with them if you have any uh ideas or topics that you'd like us to discuss on the concrete logic podcast you can uh, email me at seth at concrete logic podcast.com or hit me up on linkedin uh pretty active there Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.